Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is Season 7 of Guerrilla Christianity. My name is Pastor Brett Walker, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Guerrilla Christianity, an unconventional no-apologies exposition of God's grace from an evangelical Methodist point of view. Now, the Word of God is central to all we believe, so let's get into God's Word right now. Now, I would invite you to take out your Bibles, either the ones that you brought with you or the ones in the pews, and turning them with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 34 today. I'm looking back on my uh, three and a half years as your pastor, not one time have I ever preached a sermon on a psalm. And now I'm going to be doing it for the next six weeks. <laughs> so uh, let's enjoy this uh, journey together. Uh, but we're looking at a new sermon series. It's called A Journey Through Lent. Reflecting on Christ's sacrifice for us, and it's based on uh, this book here, uh, which is by uh, Tim Keller. Uh, Timothy Keller is the uh, senior pastor at um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And uh, in 2015, he preached a series of sermons on Psalms through the uh, season of Lent. And so that's what we're going to be doing, is we're going to be following... Uh, these sermons, uh, and today we're going to look at Psalm 34. Uh, the Psalms are songs. They're songs of praise, and they're also prayers. But more than that, they're poetry. They're Hebrew literature. Um, we call the books of Job and Psalms uh, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, we call those wisdom literature because they are literature in that they are poet, poetry and they are wisdom in that they teach us something about how to live. And so we're going to look at this psalm today, which is uh, one of what's called the penitential psalms, meaning uh, this is a psalm where um, David was delivered from something. And so he, he sings a song of praise to God, and he gives us instruction on how we can uh, get through the trials of our lives through this song. And so let us hear the word of the Lord for us. We already uh, read it in our, um, in our responsive reading today. We're going to read it again, though, now from uh, the Bible itself. And we're going to begin with... Um, the sort of introductory passage there says, A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. And he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. 
O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. May God pour out his rich blessing upon this, the reading of his holy word, and let us pray. Father God, we come this day seeking a closer relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, grow in us a desire to know you more. Open our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds so that we may receive this teaching in the spirit in which it is given, a spirit of love and mercy and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a time in the church calendar which is called Lent. Lent is the 40 days observance between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, minus all the Sundays. There's 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday if you subtract the seven Sundays, including Easter. Why do we subtract the Sundays? Well, because we want to eat sweets on Sunday. No, that's not why. Um, The reason is that every Sunday is like a little Easter. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. That's why the Christian celebrates the Sabbath on the first day of the week and not on the seventh day of the week because it was the first day of the week in which Christ rose from the tomb. And so we observe that every single week. When you look at the calendar on your wall, the first day of the week is Sunday. We give to God all things on the first. We give Him the first fruit of our increase. We give Him the first um, we give Him the first day of the week, the first hours of the day. We give Him the beginning of the year. We, we come together and we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month. We give God first things because He deserves first things, because He gives us all things and He asks so little in return. It's a, it's a trust that we give to Him the first of our week. But Lent is a time when we uh, take a kind of spiritual examination of our lives. How are we spiritually out of shape? We ask ourselves, you know, how have I, how have I been or not been taking my relationship with God seriously? You know, um, we spend time thinking about what we in early Methodism used to say, 
how is it with your soul? Whenever the early Methodists would gather together, they would ask each other this question. How is it with your soul? This is a time for us to ask ourselves that question. How is it with my soul? Have I been lacking in anything? Have I been lacking in my prayer time with God? Have I been lacking in my, my study time of the Bible? Have I been lacking in my love of others? Have I been lacking in my love of God? You know, the love that we experience, which is both horizontal out to the world and vertical to God. Jesus said that the, the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, and your strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That vertical love, love of God, and the horizontal love, love of each other, which is represented in the, in the uh, vertical and horizontal beams of the cross. So, Lent is like a mini pilgrimage between Ash Wednesday and Easter. See, the human experience as a whole is a pilgrimage. We are on a, a pilgrimage called life. We are on a journey. It's not just a meaningless meandering. We want to matter. We want to leave our mark. We always ask ourselves this question, and from the beginning of time, people have asked themselves this question. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life in general? What is the meaning of my life in particular? We want to have meaning. Lent is a time when we can look at Jesus' journey to the cross and the empty tomb and compare that with our own journey with Him. And it's a time when we have to face some hard questions. This is a time when we can reflect upon our own faith. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we can say to ourselves, do I really believe this? Do I believe that God is the maker of all things, of heaven and earth? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is His Son? Do I believe that God raised Him from the dead? Do I believe that He died for my sins? Do I believe in the Holy Spirit? Do I believe in one church universal? These are the questions that we face in our reflection upon ourselves and our faith in during Lent. Now, we're going to look at this psalm, uh, and we're going to be looking at psalms throughout the season of Lent. Um, the psalms, as I said before, they are songs. They're songs of praise. We have songs of praise. We have them collected in this book called the hymnal. And if I tell you to open to page 471, you would open up there and, and we could sing the, the song of praise together. But Jesus, in his time, they didn't have a hymnal. They had a book called the Psalms. And there's 150 of these songs that are recorded. Many of them written by the hand of David. This is one of them. David was a musician. He would play the lyre uh, for, for Saul. He would play and sing songs to himself when he was shepherding the sheep. And so it was natural that when he became king, he would take some time and he would write some of these songs. And these songs are written at different times. Uh, sometimes 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David would record what was the circumstance of this particular psalm that he wrote. And that's why I read the introductory part where it says a psalm of David, meaning that he's the one who wrote it, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now, what is that talking about? See, from 1 Samuel chapter 21, David was being pursued by Saul. And David found himself in the area known as Gath. Now, if... Um, if David was just anybody, he could probably hide out in Gath and blend in and nobody would have been any of the wiser. But David was David. And there was somebody from Gath who had very up-close and personal acquaintance with David and his name was Goliath. And Goliath had, had family and relatives who lived in Gath. Goliath was from Gath. David killed Goliath. The people of Gath know who David is. They know him as their enemy. And so here is David fleeing from Saul into the arms of the Philistines, his enemies, his mortal enemies. You want to talk about being in between a rock and a hard place. This was it. This is David had a killer at his back and killers in front of him. And what does he do? Well, this is what he did. It says uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. People were singing songs to David and saying, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, you know. And what were they talking about? They were talking about Philistines. So here's a man who's killed tens of thousands of Philistines and he's running into the arms of the Philistines. You know? And that's what these people are saying. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, of course he would be. You know? As any of us would be. So, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So he says, This guy's nuts. Get him out of here. You know? Thinking, he's not going to hurt anybody. He's just... He's out there. He's nuts, you know. Well, that saved David. David realized that when he had been delivered from his enemy behind, his enemy in front of him, that it wasn't just his doing, that it was the doing of God. And that's what this psalm is all about. That's the context, and this is the psalm. The first thing he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David, having just been delivered from death, has nothing but praise for God. David was experiencing fear. Of course he was experiencing fear. He had someone who wanted to kill him, chasing him, and he's running into a whole village of people who want to kill him. 
you know? David came to the Philistines while running away from Saul uh, by obeying God. He is suffering, drowning in all his fears. He has nowhere to run. And what does he pray for? What is it that he prays? He doesn't pray, deliver me from Saul. He doesn't say, deliver me from the Philistines. He says, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. That's the prayer of David. Not to be delivered from people, not to be delivered from situations, but to be delivered from his fears. He says, I am a poor man, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. See, life happens. Life happens. We can't avoid bad things. Bad things happen. We get beat down. We might think that we're in control, and then something happens, and we suddenly realize we are at the mercy of life. We are not in control. We like to think that we are a lion. I am a lion, but in reality, I'm not. In reality, I'm a lamb at the mercy of life. David realized that he needed to get out from underneath these fears. So his prayer was to deliver him from fear. Now we have to admit the reality of these destructive fears. There are fears that are healthy. There are fears that are beneficial. You can fear fire, for example, and so uh, you do everything in your, in your power to not burn down your house, right? Uh, you make sure that your, your wires are not frayed. You make sure that you're not leaving a, a, a dish towel on the stove when it's burning, you know? You make sure that you don't leave the house with the iron on, you know? It's a healthy fear, the fear of, of fire. Fire will burn you, right? And so we respect it, okay? Um, you can have a fear of being destitute. You can have a fear of losing your job or, or losing your income. And so uh, we do everything in our power not to lose uh, our income so that we can survive, you know? Um, if you, if you have a job, you, you go to work each day, you, you do your job diligently, you make sure you try to impress your boss a little bit and so that you can keep your job and maybe even get a raise every once in a while. And so that's driven by fear, fear of loss. So there's, there are uh, healthy fears, but these are destructive fears that we're talking about, okay? We will have fear. We, will feel like life is too much. We cannot bear it. We have fear of rejection. We have fear of loss, fear of inadequacy, fear of being alone. Think about the poem by Edgar Allan Poe called The Raven. What is the raven always saying? Nevermore. Nevermore. You know, that fear of loss, that fear of nevermore. And the man who struggled with that one word, nevermore. We are fragile. We can be gone in an instant. There's a thousand things in the world that we cannot control. We have fear of the unknown. So, if, if we will have any good days and take back 
We have to take on our fears. Because, you know, to, to be human is to wish never to die and that the people around us will never die, but that's, that's impossible. Uh, all throughout history, uh, the death rate among human beings is 100%. Everybody dies, eventually. But we, we wish not to. And we don't want the people around us to die. And so that's fear. So, all throughout history, human beings have dealt with these fears in different ways. Uh, the Greeks dealt with it by detachment. They called themselves Stoic. Stoic. I mean, they didn't want to get too close. Don't get too close to people. Don't, don't, you know, don't get too close to situations and that way you can never be hurt. Okay? It's not really real, realistic, though. Karma says that we suffer because, bad, because we cause bad things to happen. And when we do bad things, bad things happen to us. So, that fear is supposed to drive us to do better so that bad things don't happen to us. The problem is that bad things do happen to people who even do good. Now, in our modern society, we are very humanistic. We are very secular. We are very God-denying, you know. We don't want to acknowledge a, a, a holy God. We want to deal with our fear. We are told that there is nothing to deal with our fear but pitiless ignorance. That's what Richard Dawkins said. Richard Dawkins, one of the uh, most well-known of all the atheists, he says, stop whining because there's no suffering because there is no evil. There's nothing such thing as, a, as evil and good that would indicate morality. Morality has to come from somewhere. But, in fact, there is no good, there is no evil, there is just being. So stop whining. You know? That's the modern take on it. But see, we are attached to something that helps us to cope with our fear. Rather than being afraid, Rather than cowering in fear of, of, of life in general and what the fickle finger of fate can do to us at any second is to trust in God. Fear of the Lord, says Proverbs 1.7, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord. And when I say fear of the Lord, I'm not talking about a, a cowering fear. There is some of that. In the presence of an awesome and holy God, of course there's going to be some level of cowering. But we read in the Transfiguration story last week that when they cowered in fear before Jesus, who was transfigured before them, He went and He touched them. And He said, Do not fear. Arise. That's God's invitation to us. 365 times in the Bible it says, Do not fear. God assuring us that He loves us. And He doesn't want to cause us harm. Do not fear. Because He loves us. See, here is the biblical answer. We need to have something greater than our fears. Unless we put our fear in the God of the universe, we're building our, our life like a sandcastle, and life is the tide coming in. The biblical answer is that we need to replace the destructive fears with the redemptive fear of the Lord. Overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, 
That's what fear is in us. We are overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. But David says, yes, I am overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. But the fear of the Lord is like that on steroids. He says, you must be overwhelmed by Him if you will navigate the fears of your life. We have to admit that we're not a lion. We have to admit that we are poor. The glory of God in verse 3 says, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. The glory of God is what restores us. It is a fear that makes us feel small in the presence of God, but it is a fear that uplifts us by humbling us. Isn't that odd? We are enlarged and enriched because there is a relationship between being small and being healthy. Glorious God of the universe, we worship Him. And this is worship. We, discipline of the fear of the Lord is worship. He says, glorify the Lord with me. Let's do it together. He says, I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Not just me, David, alone, but all of us. Let us all glorify God. That's the church. It's not a museum for saints, as it's been said. It's a hospital for sinners. It's a place where we come together to glorify God together. It's not a gathering place for lions. It's a place where the lambs come to say, I am weak. The lambs gather together. Now there are three ways in which worship helps us to learn the fear of the Lord. And we use these words from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is a humility that heals us. It's a willingness to admit that we are poor. The challenge of Lent is that it's not about them out there. It's not about the world at large. It's not about all the sin that's going on outside those doors. It's about what's going on in here. That's what Lent is about. Lent is about looking inward. In the church today, we have moralistic, egotistical simplism. What does that all mean? It means that we begin to colonize Christianity. We say, we come to church and we say that God is more here for us than we are here for Him. If I had a dollar for every time that somebody said, you know, I'm not getting anything out of church. What are you putting into it? That's the question. The, the church today is geared toward God do for us. You know? You think that you're, uh, how much of your prayer life is about your own needs rather than repentance. How, how, much of your, how many of your tears have you poured out upon a, a carpet on your knees because of the things that you've sinned against God? I know that I've, I've, I've dampened the carpet up there in, in the office of the parsonage because I, I feel so unworthy most of the time. That's what our heart needs to be. You know, you think that being good will get you good things, but there is a God, and you are not Him. And if that's news to you, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's the way it is. There is a God. You are not Him, but we must trust Him. We must obey God, even in the storms. David's trying to obey God, and his life is getting worse. Why is this good news? 
Because when you're suffering and you come to the Bible and you say, why should I trust God? Where does it always take you? How do you know that you can trust God? The cross. The cross tells us that we can trust in God because that's what He did for us. Trust God through the storms because Jesus, the lion, the only lion who ever walked the earth, became a lamb for you. Why do we obey the Bible? Because of the cross. The best answer there is, is that Jesus died for you. So we have faith. And we need hope. In verses 19 to 22, David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Where is his confidence? It's in hope. How does he know that God will deliver him? Because we want to believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but we have no idea. Think about Luke 24. There's two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, and they are so dejected because they just watched their master crucified and buried in a tomb. And then these women come along and they say, He is risen, and they're so confused. They have no idea what's going on. They had put all their hope in him as the Messiah. They watched him die and they thought, my hope is gone. And now Jesus appears to them on the road. They didn't know it was him, but he opens up their eyes to the scriptures and and he says, this is what the scriptures said about the Christ and this is what he had to do to fulfill all those things. You just don't understand. And their eyes were opened. See, we don't have hope in a dead Christ. We have hope Because he is risen. Because of the resurrection. That's where our hope is. When we die, it will be his nail-scarred hands that will embrace us in heaven. That is our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. Death does not get the last answer. Life wins. Life matters. This life matters. The material world matters. Our hope is in the resurrection. Now Paul said, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, he said, is love. You see, in many ways, the Greeks were right that the detachment is a good way to cope with fear, because if you detach from things, you just don't care. The closer you are to someone, the more fear there is and the tendency to detach because you don't want to be hurt. But it's not that we should love our children, our friends, or our family less. When Jesus said that unless you hate your father and mother and unless you uh, uh, hate yourself, you cannot love God. Is he talking about that we should love our friends and neighbors less? No. He's saying that we should love God more. We need to love God more. We need to be closer to God. What do we do when sorrow comes? What do we do in our life when sorrow comes? We pick up the phone and we call a friend and we, we, we pour it out to them. Oh, God wants us to do that for Him as well. To get on our knees and to pour our tears onto the carpet and say, God, I need you. I need you. I love you. And God loves us. And He responds to us. The first instinct is to talk to someone 
that you care about. We need a hug. We need comfort. God is the immutable, unchangeable. He is love himself. What kept Christ on the cross? The very Son of God, who did all those miracles, who, who appeared just, who walked across the water, you know, who was transfigured. What kept him on the cross? It wasn't the nails. He could have come down from that cross anytime he wanted to. He could have called down 12 legions of angels and wiped everybody out. What kept him on the cross was love. What kept him on the cross was love. Christ is risen. He is resurrected because he loved. And he is coming back again to wipe away every tear. And we proclaim this every time we come to communion. Christ has died. The cross. Christ is risen. The hope of the resurrection. Christ will come again. His love. He will wipe away every tear. And so, we begin this journey through the Psalms, through Lent. We're going to look at ourselves and we're going to say, God, we need you. In today's society, we still need God. We ne that never went away. You can modernize all the things of life. It doesn't matter because the relationship with God is paramount to everything. And so, during this journey of Lent, we're going to look and we're going to see. We're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to begin our journey with communion. And we're going to end at the empty tomb. During this journey, we're going to say, we need, we need faith that makes us look to the cross. We need hope that springs from the resurrection. And we need the love of God from His nail-scarred hands. We need the love of God that He will return one day to wipe away every tear. Let us pray. Oh, great and awesome God, our Father, we worship You today in deed and in spirit. Teach us, Lord, a healthy fear of You today. We so want to come alongside You and be Your buddy, but You are a holy God. You are a flame of fire. You are the great God of the universe. Yet You call us to love You to be in relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Deliver us from our fears. When life seems overwhelming, let us be overwhelmed by you. When all seems impossible, you make the impossible possible. O oh Lord, we thank you for your grace, mercy, and love. Through this season of Lent, may we grow closer to you. Reveal our hearts to us that we may grow in your love and that in our sorrow we may find joy. In our trials we may find peace. In our fears we may find hope. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Guerrilla Christianity. My prayer for you is that you have been blessed in its teaching as I have been blessed putting this message together. God has also blessed me in appointing me to serve two churches in Salem County, New Jersey. Ebenezer United Methodist Church in Auburn, and Hudson United Methodist Church in Pettertown. And if you live in the area and you don't have a church to call your own, I'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings. Ebenezer meets for worship at 9 a.m., and Hudson meets for worship at 10.30. We also have Bible study during the week. 
Now, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to help support it, please share it with your friends and family. Hit like, leave a comment, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search for Guerrilla Christianity. Keep learning, keep growing, and I pray you will join us for Guerrilla Christianity again. Until next time, remember this, Christ died for you, now go live for Christ.